If you have your Bibles, would you please open them to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, if you read the heading at the beginning, is the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Now, Pentecost was a Jewish feast that the Jewish folks there in Jerusalem had gathered together in their worship as Jewish followers of God. Yet God used it as a time that he would bring the expected, prophesied by Jesus, Holy Spirit to come upon his people, followers of Jesus, that would become the church. And it's not on your outline, but if you were to read from chapter 2, verse 1, it says, when the day of Pentecost came... They were all together in one place. Suddenly, they were worshiping. A sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. The Holy Spirit came upon God's people, the church, at Pentecost. And Peter then addresses the crowd in this amazing sermon that takes place in verse 14 and following. And really, he really talks in this apostolic gospel, the gospel of the apostles, the witnesses of Jesus, the first witnesses that had walked with him and knew him, of two events, Jesus' death and resurrection of two witnesses, the prophets in the past and the apostles in the present, and of two promises, that of forgiveness for your past sins and the Holy Spirit to carry you forward, and two conditions, repentance and faith. And that list of two is not mine. That's John R.W. Stott. You can read his commentary, The Spirit, the Church, and the World on the book of Acts, where I got that from. But these two conditions, repentance from your sins and faith in Jesus as your Savior. And then as evidence of people believing in Jesus, repenting of their sins, putting their faith in Him, and then receiving the Holy Spirit, something that may be more miraculous than the tongues of fire and speaking other languages happens next. That's where we get in verse 42. Down in verse 42, it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. That's a summary sentence, really. He's saying here of the first believers in Jesus. Then look, it explains it in verse 43 and following. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and good, and gave to anyone as they had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple court. They broke bread in their homes and ate with, together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Do you see what I mean? 
the greatest miracle of Acts chapter 2 may not have been the coming of the Holy Spirit and the tongues of fire and them hearing and understanding in different languages. The greatest miracle of Acts chapter 2 may have been these changed lives, that these people that may have known each other came together and became a church. And that this new church in Jerusalem immediately took on new characteristics that identified it from Judaism to followers of Jesus. And the way that they cared for and discipled one another. Your scripture memory verse for the month. And let's read it together. Romans 12.10 Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Romans 12, 10. Every one of our scripture points today has to do with together. But let's walk through our next steps and then we'll exposit our scripture quickly because we've got to go. Our next steps, you remember, are clearly calling Christ followers to obedience. This is what you should do next if you haven't done it already. It's a pathway to spiritual growth. David Browning, writing in Deliberate Simplicity, says... That I am convinced that the gap holding back most believers is not the gap between what they know and what they don't know. It is the gap between what they know and what they are living. He says we are educated beyond our obedience. If coming to church for you is nothing more than learning more facts and having more Bible knowledge accumulated so you could win at Bible trivia... God bless you. We're glad that you're intelligent and you're educated. But what discipleship and following Jesus means is that you are obedient to what you know. Not so much concerned about what you don't know. There is a need for Christian knowledge. There is a need for us to study the Bible. But the greater need is for us to apply it. So the first next step is follow Jesus. That means get saved, but it has the idea of following Jesus in an ongoing relationship with him. The second next step is get baptized. There is no reason not to. If you were to say to me, the reason I'm not baptized yet is because it would hurt my mother's feelings because I was baptized as an infant as a Catholic, I would say, read scripture and see what Jesus says about your father, mother, brother, sister, and about being obedient to him. That's harsh, but it's in the Bible. Invite others is our third next step. The number one thing that we as a church need to do differently is invite others into relationships with us. Invite others to consider a relationship with Jesus and invite them to church. We need to be in those relationships. Fourth is belong together. Belong together reminds us that Sunday morning is just the beginning and sitting here in the pews is a good thing, but we want you to be in Sunday school classes or small groups where you are known and be known, know others. Begin giving is our next one. Our church is wonderful It's supporting through giving. And we heard those statistics a few weeks ago as I brought that out. But maybe you haven't given yet or maybe you haven't committed, but you should. God will bless you if you do. Last week's sermon, the sixth one, is start serving. I talked about how well our church serves last week and how that we have 45% of our active members are serving in an at least once monthly ministry. And the rest of you, 55%, who are not serving in at least once monthly ministry must have gone, great, I don't have to serve. 
And you walked right by every one of those tables last week. Yes, I'm scolding you now. I love you, and I love you enough to say, serve, volunteer, do something. Now, I realize you may serve outside of our church walls with a nonprofit, uh, uh, you know, or in some other way, and that's amazing, and I'm thankful for it. But we have all kinds of little jobs around here that we could use you to do, and why aren't they getting done yet? Because you haven't volunteered yet. So there's some on those tables. They're still out there. Sign up today, not because Pastor Aaron guilted you to, but because you know it's the right thing to do, right? And then today, disciple others. Disciple others. Now, disciple means to be a student, a learner, an apprentice. But when we talk about discipling others, it's something that we do in leading or training or teaching others. So this fall, we're going to offer you the opportunity, no matter who you are, no matter what ministry you're involved in in our church, or maybe you're not even involved one yet, to come to a special class. It'll be one weeknight evening uh, every week for 30 weeks called the Multiplication Pipeline. And it's designed to help us develop leaders of all types. And the first year is going to be about spiritual formation, biblical knowledge, and missional living. But it's not just about what you know, but every week there's homework of what you're going to do about it. Nathan and Emily Wakefield are leading us in that, and others will teach along the way. And we'll give you more information about that as we get closer to it in August when we launch. But I've got to move on now with our key text today. And that's to answer the question, how do we disciple others? How do we disciple others? And we see those things here in verses 42 and following of Acts chapter 2. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching, that tells us that we should, number one, study the Bible together. That's your first set of blanks there in the how do we disciple others. Let's study the Bible together. They were a learning church. So here you had 3,000 new converts to Christianity, all of whom got baptized presumptively as quick as they could until all the apostles were sore from dunking people and lifting them back up, and they all needed to take medicine because their backs hurt too much. But 3,000 new disciples in Jesus, it's like they had a brand new school, and every pupil was in kindergarten, Right? The apostles had walked with Jesus, but these people had a whole lot of catching up to do. Even though they may have known about the Old Testament, they may have known about Judaism, they did not know about Jesus. We need to study the Bible together. And the question is, who am I learning with? If you read my blog post, uh, 50, and it's AaronHouseholder.net, and it's the first one on there because I published it yesterday. I said, number 33, listen. You're going to learn things. Number 34, reflect. You'll learn more things. And I said in there that we need to read. We need to travel. But you see all through there that we need to do it together, to give ourselves to others and to spend time with one another. We learn more when we study together because then it's not just our questions. It's not just our insight. It's other people's questions and other people's insight. God designed us as body of believers to fit together, to learn together. The next item on your outline there is to spend time together. Verse 42, it says, and to fellowship. 
You skip on down to verse 46. It says, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, breaking bread together. This word of koinonia, the Greek word meaning to gather together, that their lives were one. These were gatherings both formally, like a church service or a Bible study or a prayer meeting, but informally, they did life together. Like you hear me say again and again, Sunday morning is just the beginning, that we're in a relationship with one another. And if you only come to church on Sunday morning and you leave, God bless you, you're here, we're glad you're here. But I would invite you to take the next step, go to Sunday school, invite you to take the step beyond that, talk to people, invite you to get together to share your lives together. I know that takes time to grow a relationship, but invest in it. Your question asks, who am I sharing life with? Who are you sharing life with? Your family, yes. I hope so. But some friends as well. That analogy of a Lego, and although there are uh, tens of thousands of Legos in my home, I didn't bring any. But, you know, there's that little Lego that just has the two bumps on the top, right? Maybe you're a two-bump sort of person. You've got room for two important relationships in your life. Maybe you're the square one. you got four little bumps on the top of your Lego. You can have four important relationships. Maybe you got, oh, I can't get them all in a row, six bumps on your Lego. You can have six important relationships. I don't know how big your Lego is, but you need to share life with somebody that they might help shape you as Jesus desires you to be shaped. So we study the Bible together. We spend time together. Your third point on your outline, they worship Jesus together. Where do we get that? Go back to verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread. The definite article, the, indicates he's not just talking about eating a regular meal together. He's talking about the Lord's Supper. He's talking about worshiping Jesus in a formal way and doing it together. Skip on down to verse 46. It says, They broke bread in their homes and they ate with glad and sincere hearts. The way we do the Lord's Supper is something that's evolved and something that works for us. You know, we have the table down here and the deacons serve you and all that sort of thing. But these in the first churches were house churches. And so they would have a meal in which they actually ate real food. Hey, we're having dinner, we're having lunch. And oh, by the way, because we're together as believers of Jesus, we're also going to have this special part in which we remember Jesus, in which we have wine and we have unleavened bread. They worship Jesus together in their life with one another. The question I ask you, how frequently do I gather it's been interesting to me that in my tenure as pastor, how attendance patterns have changed. There are some of us that are here every week, some that are here part of the time, and some of us are here a quarter of the time or less. And we're all part of this family, and it's part of your life. You know, you've got other things going on. But the Bible makes it clear that you should be in relationship with others, worshiping with them, studying the Bible with them, praying with them all the time, not just some of the time. Let's move on to your fourth point there. Pray together. Pray together. That's the last phrase there in verse 42. And in my English version, the NIV, it says, and to prayer. But in the Greek, it actually has a definite article, the, there. It says, and to the prayer. And so there's some debate on this by scholars. Is it a specific prayer they're talking about, like the Lord's Prayer? Or is it, and to the prayer, like the prayer meetings that Jewish people still kept regularly, even though they were followers of Jesus? Or is it a special prayer meeting that the new Christians started? But 
Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, when he wrote this down later, said, and to the prayer, so that everybody in that early church would go, oh, that prayer. So even though we don't know exactly what prayer, it's the idea of a formal prayer meeting and the idea of praying together. If the heartbeat of a church is a prayer meeting, um, dear church family, we got a weak heartbeat. We've got a few small little prayer meetings I know about. We need more. Maybe that's what you need to volunteer for. Maybe it's not something on one of the tables out there, but you need to say, I'm going to start a prayer meeting in my home, or I'm going to start a prayer meeting at church at this time for this purpose. I pray with others more. Don't just pray for others. I'll pray for you. Pray with others. Pray with them right then and there. Don't wait around. Pray with them right then and there. It's such a simple, wonderful blessing. I use the example of Bob Rung all the time because Bob will just say at the end of a conversation, let me pray for you. And he puts his arm around you and he prays for you about that thing right then and there. And you're like, wow, I think I can like float for the next 10 minutes now because Bob just prayed for me. Have you had somebody do that for you? If not, could you do it for somebody else? Just right then and there, pray for them. Even if it's a colleague at work, you know, and you're not sure what they'll think if you say you're going to pray for them. Just, just go for it, man. If the Holy Spirit tells you, say, can I pray with you about that right now? I'm a believer in Jesus. Put your arm around them. Put your hand on their forearm, however you feel comfortable touching them. And as you touch them, you pray. And you just pray a simple prayer. Lord Jesus, would you help my coworker with fill in the blank? We're going to trust you to change this situation. Amen. And you just watch what happens. I think we don't see as many answers to prayers because we don't pray enough. It's just me, me included. Let's move on in our outline. Your fifth point there is they experience God's power together. Now, this one is one that is, um, you know, Baptist folks, we kind of go, whoa. And everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. Now, there's different schools of thoughts here. Some that believe that these gifts ended with the apostolic church. And I can certainly see that. And it's not normative now for people to be healed or for things like that to happen. But God's still God. And if God wants a healing to happen, if God wants some other miraculous happenstance to occur, He can and will do it. He does it to bring glory to Himself. Our question is, where have I sought God's power? When have I sought God's power? Have we prayed asking God to heal somebody, to change their life, to do something that only he could do so that he alone can get the glory? It's all about Jesus. It's all about others. And it's all about us doing this together to bring glory to God. Your sixth point there is meeting needs together. Meeting needs together. That's in verse 44 and 45. Interesting that these two verses go together, but look at what it says. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods, and they gave to anyone as he had need. Now, don't take this the wrong way, and don't think uh, the Bible is saying we all need to be socialists. I'm not saying anything about Bernie or anybody else. I'm saying you need a balanced view of possessions and wealth, not just take a single scripture. But for our point today, this scripture in this list of hallmarks of the first church and how they discipled one another together and what they did for one another, you see that they met one another's needs, that one person, as they had means, 
gave it to meet the needs of others who did not have means. And so obviously you've got to work and do something to earn the means or be blessed by God to have the means in order to give it to others. So don't take this too far in your understanding, but just look at it from that very basic foundational understanding of we meet the needs of one another. That question asks, how have I cared for others? I'm not asking you to consider how others have cared for you. You can turn that around and make it a very selfish question, but I want you to ask it as an otherish question. Remember, it's God-powered, it's self-sacrificing, and it's other-focused. That's who we are here, right? And how have I cared for others? How have I met the needs of others? That's how we need to consider that. Your seventh point there is they praise God together. That's in verse 47. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. They lived in such a way in their praise that other people recognized it. Do any of you know a plumber who doesn't fix pipes? Not a plumber if you don't fix pipes, right? But are you, can you be a follower of Jesus and not be obedient to him? And that in your obedience and in the way that you live your life, you bring glory to him because people see that you're different. And they immediately will give glory to you or praise to you. But you know that it's not about you. You know that it's about him. It's about Jesus and what he does in us. And we bring him glory by the way we live our lives and committing ourselves to others. That question asks you, how has worship changed me? Because they had been together, because they had prayed together, because they had worshiped together, because they had shared to meet the needs of others, they were changed and they brought praise to God through how they lived together. And how's it changed you? When you come on Sunday morning, I hope you walk away saying, okay, I learned this, I learned this, but I also committed to this. And this is what I'm going to do differently this week to be more like Jesus. We study together, we spend time together, we worship together, we pray together, we experience God together, we meet needs together, we praise God together and bring Him praise. And our fifth or eighth and final point, we share Jesus together. Now go back to verse 47. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Do you know what that meant? Not only were they doing things to make a name for Jesus, but they were sharing a personal witness, saying the reason I do things like this, the reason I live this way, is Jesus has changed me. I believe that he died for my sins, and because I am a follower of Jesus, I live in a way that would attract your attention, lost person. Why don't you trust Jesus as well? They were sharing a personal witness with their mouths, not just with their actions, of Jesus and inviting people into their fellowship. That's discipling others. That's the first step in discipleship. John Stott says that the Holy Spirit is a missionary spirit for a missionary church. The first church was not just focused on learning and worshiping and prayer, that they forgot about worshiping God. So your question is, who am I telling about Jesus? We've got our bulletin board back there with the hello, my name is stickers on. I don't know if we ran out of stickers. Maybe we'll get some more. 
It's a great problem to run out of. But when you walk by there, remember to pray for those people that we're inviting into relationships. We're inviting to consider Jesus as their savior. And we're inviting them. To church. It's all about Jesus. It's all about others. It's all about us doing this together. Because God has called us as a church named Southview to be his witness in this part of the world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you with these words of scripture on our mind. And a call to obedience that is going to be as unique as every person in here. What do we need to do in response to today's sermon? How do we need to change? What do we need to surrender that Jesus might be Jesus? Where do we need faith and courage? So God, we pray as always that any of us here as believers would be willing to take that step, whether that's to put our name on a sheet out in the hallway that says, yes, I'm interested to learn more about serving in this ministry. Or whether it's to walk down the aisle to join this church or say that I need to get baptized as a believer. Or maybe I need to trust Jesus as my personal Savior. Would we obey you? Amen.